Well, we are in a new series on Advent, and I'm excited for it. And Christmas is always an interesting time as a pastor because you, you, there are really you know, five or six different passages that you can focus on that, that really focus on Christmas. You can't read the book of Mark. I mean, you can, but it's really Luke, Luke chapter 2. You know, uh, that's where we get all the stories. That's where we get the, the Peanuts recitation. Um, but one of the, the most key passages that, that we quote from is in Isaiah chapter 9. And what's interesting about this section, and we're going to get into it in a moment, is that it was written over 700 years before the advent of Jesus Christ. And yet, it speaks of him. It speaks of the person, Jesus Christ. And actually, when Melvin and, and his Melbourne and, and their family was here, that was what we were reading from, was, was Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and following. And so we're going to look at those verses over the next few weeks, but today I want us to get into Isaiah chapter 9 and, and consider what God said in preparation for his people. Because he took his people from a place of gloom, anguish, and darkness into a place of light, life, and, and his goodness. And even though we don't live in the same time period, and, and as we d- begin to look at, at the situation surrounding this prophecy, you might begin to say to yourself, what does this even have to do with me and about Christian uh, life here and now? But the reality is, this applies to us ever so relevantly. So let's stand together. If you're new, we like to read the Word of God together. We're going to read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious this way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new Advent day. We come to you remembering the the great lengths to which you went to address the deepest needs of our life. In this moment, God, we come to you remembering our own brokenness, our sinfulness, the radical results of, of the original rebellion of Adam and Eve, and our own brokenness, rebellion against you. God, we remember the depths of our own sinfulness, how even maybe on the way to, to church or, or this week we've found ourselves straying away from your commands. And yet, God, we remember as well as in Advent your, your immense grace, the radical lengths to which you go that we might be reconciled to you. God, we thank you for the forgiveness, the cleansing, the healing, and the redemption that comes not by the might of of a thousand armies, not by the strength of tanks and and airplanes and uh, military force, not by political power and, and prowess, but God, by the humble work of, of, a, of a single baby who becomes a man who lives a perfect and holy life before you. God, I pray that you would quicken our hearts to receive this message of, of light-giving, life-giving glory. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. That you'd remove the blinders that would prevent us from appreciating 
the wonder and the awe of your justice and your mercy coming together in this person, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that like Isaiah and like the people of Israel, that we would hope in the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the one that you promised you would send who would be King of kings and Lord of lords and who would rule and reign and at the same time bring restoration. God, I pray that you would speak by your spirit. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak through your word. We pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys can be seated. So I want to talk about the context of this prophecy. What I'm going to call the, the former state, which, which you might shorthand as gloom and anguish. Yay, happy Advent. And the latter state, glory. So we'll talk about context because this needs context. We're going to talk about gloom and anguish, and we're going to talk about glory. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on context, but it is important. You don't want to just jump into Isaiah and start reading and just say, let's appropriate this for ourselves because there's a great deal of, of baggage around what's going on here. Uh, and, and long story short, really long story short, if you want to know how long, read First and Second Kings. But long story short, the people of God have broken covenant with God. To make it an even longer story, God had chosen a people through Abraham, he'd built them up. They'd gone into slavery in Egypt. He brought them out through who? Moses. And they'd become the promised nation. They'd gone into the promised land and God had established them as a people. They said, hey, we want a king. So they chose Saul. Saul was a terrible king. They chose, or God chose David. David was a better king. David had his son Solomon who was in many ways an amazing king and in many ways uh, had brought ruin actually to the nation. And after that, we have what's called the divided kingdom. In the divided kingdom, you have the north and the south. Everyone say north and south. There we go. North is Israel. North is Israel. South is Judah. North is Israel. South is Judah. Okay, good. North is? Okay. All right. There'll be a test after this. Um, Nearly every king of the northern kingdom was the worst. And they were the worst until the next king. I mean, you can go from king to king. In fact, I went just so I could be able to say this with a level of confidence. And, and it goes from Jeroboam, who's bad, Nadab to bad, Baasha, bad, Elah, drunk. Not, he, he didn't spend a whole lot of time. He, he ends up dying very quickly. Zimri, he was bad, commits suicide. Omri, very bad. Ahab, very, very bad. And it just goes on. There's actually a Jeroboam II who was also as bad as his namesake. Um, so the kings of the northern country were either bad or dead. And so they, they, they are bad in the sense that they rebel against God. They, they do what the covenant of God, the, the, the rules of, of Moses, right, the Ten Commandments, etc., say don't do. They, they worship Baals and, and Ashtoreth and, and uh, other, other surrounding idols. And that, that idol worship isn't just, hey, we're going to go to a different church. That idol worship involved uh, sacrifice, sometimes human sacrifice. It is bad. They did bad things. 
And many of the kings of Judah also followed in the idolatry and disobedience of Israel, though some did stay faithful to God. And in Isaiah's time, the king Uzziah had died. He was actually a righteous king, but many of them were bad. And so God had promised that he would judge the people of Israel. How many of you know that, that when we do bad things, God, who is a just God, must judge those things? Right? We, we understand that as it relates to God dealing with other people. Right? As a parent, maybe you've got that neighbor and those neighborhood kids, and, and, and you, you, uh, you want God to judge those, that family. <laughs> or maybe you don't, but sometimes you think about it. Right? We, when we think of other people, we, and I joke, but we want to see justice met out. Because that's, that's just innate within us. There's a desire for justice, and that comes from God who is just. And so when God looks at Israel, when he looks at, 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 at Judah and sees that they are being disobedient over and over and over again, even though God promises that he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, there's a point at which he must say, because of my justice, I have to do something. And so because they've rejected him, Isaiah prophesies in chapter 8 that, that God is going to bring judgment. And that judgment, because this is a national issue, comes in the form of a national response. The nation of Assyria comes in from the north and, and begins to cut away at, at, at Israel and Judah. It says in, in chapter 8, verses 5 and following, the Lord spoke to me, talking about Isaiah, because this people has res- refused the waters of Sh- uh, Shiloh that flow gently. In other words, because the people have, have refused my gentle counsel and care and rejoice over Rezin and the son of uh, Ramaliah. In other words, the, the king of, of Judah, God had said, trust me. There was some impending military danger and God told Isaiah to tell the king to trust God. Instead, instead the king chose to trust men. And verse 7 says, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. In other words, God promises, because you rejected me, you chose to hope in men, you chose to hope in chariots, you chose to hope in something besides God, which is idolatry. I'm going to bring judgment. And that judgment is Assyria. God sends the kingdom of Assyria to judge the kingdoms of Israel and eventually Judah, but the God who is the God of judgment is also the God of salvation. Pause. Are you tracking with me? Some of you are saying yes. Some of you are just staring and hoping I won't look at you. Okay. (laughs) The point of the matter is, this is a dark time. So as we get to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah says, There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. So what is the former state? The former state is gloom and anguish. The area of Zebulun and Naphtali are part of Israel, the northern kingdom. So the north is Israel, awesome. And in Israel, the north part of the north is, uh, I believe it's Zebulun, but it's one of the two. So Zebulun and Naphtali. One's higher, the other's lower. They're both part of the northern kingdom. These two cities are some of the first to fall to the Assyrian invasion. And in 2 Kings chapter 15, if I'll go there. In 2 Kings chapter 15, it records what happens Second Kings 15, verse 29. I'll start in verse 27. In the 52nd year 
of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for 23 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, right? We talked about this. He did not depart from the sins of who? Jeroboam, the guy who started it all, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Verse 29, in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, uh, Tiglath-Pileser, uh, king of Israel, came, and, and he's Tiglath-Pileser III, which means there were two others who decided to take that name. Um, okay, uh, King of Assyria came and captured, among others, Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Israel. So the people of God, the Israelites who had joined in Jeroboam and the kings who followed in their idolatry, in their sin, and in their rebellion had been carried off into captivity. They were taken from their home, they were put into uh, work. They were kept as as prisoners. The people were standing in gloom and anguish and darkness because of their sin. They were standing in gloom and anguish and darkness because of their rebellion. And they were standing in gloom, anguish, and darkness because of the judgment that God had extended for their idolatry. And at this point, we would be reading this and you might be tempted to say, well, that is an interesting story for those foolish, primitive, evil people in those times. Man, those guys, they're, they're bad. I'm so glad that we've figured things out. We have iPhones. We've, we've really uh, we've brought about, there's the Geneva Convention. We are an international organization. We are, are, are wiser, smarter, more educated, better. That's right, we're not. I'd like to think that, but if you ask my family members, they might be able to tell you that that indwelling sin still exists. The truth of the matter is that we are made of the exact same stuff that they were. I promise it's going to get better. This is Advent, but we've got to start somewhere. In Genesis chapter 6, before it gets better, it gets worse. It gets worse quickly. God creates Adam and Eve. It's very good. It's awesome. Chapter 2 happens and 3 happens and they sin. Things go bad. The next chapter you're like, well, maybe things will get better. Cain kills his brother. goes from just sinning, eating an apple, to now murder. And then uh, it gets even worse. There's a guy named Lamech. Just read about him later. He's a, he's a capital J jerk. He's bad. That's probably putting it lightly. Anyways, chapter 6 happens. And God is looking over the people of the earth. And it says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continuously. He is laboring to say that we are twisted in our sin. I'm going to read that again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. You might say to yourself, okay, well, of man, that's kind of a general term. Maybe it's most of the people, not all of the people. Maybe it's just the men, not the women. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, but he goes, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Every intention, how many of the intentions? Every single one of them, of the thoughts of his heart, well, were, were what? Evil and sometimes good. No, only evil. Okay, but how often? Continually. Don't kid yourself, family. The reason the gospel exists is because we need the gospel. 
The reason Jesus comes and we celebrate and we do all these things is because there is a deep-seated problem in my life and in your life. I say that in love. You guys are wonderful, handsome, beautiful, smart, good-looking people who are desperately wicked apart from God. In Jeremiah, just to, just to ride this, this horse a little bit further, <laughs> Jeremiah 17, another prophet, says this in response to what our hearts are like. He says in verse 9, the heart, the seed of all our personhood, uh, is, is deceitful above all things. So wh- how would you describe, Jeremiah, the human heart? Like, if you could give me one word, you know, kind, tender, uh, free-willed, how would you describe it? He says, above all, it is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the, 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 the response is, is no one. No one, can, no one can really grasp how desperately wicked we are. Now, you're in this room, and, and what I want you not to do is to say, you're right, that guy, desperately wicked. <laughs> My neighbor over here, desperately wicked. Look at your neighbor and say, it's me we're talking about. It's me we're talking about. Like, I'm saying it from the front. It's me we're talking about. And, and you might not recognize this in your life. You might say, well, I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen anything. I've lived, I've lived a pretty good life. But the problem is we judge our lives based on those around us rather than based on the holiness of a holy and separate and different and other God. You and I, when we look at one another, I would say you guys are all probably better than me. You're, you're, you're doing great. But when we think of the holiness of God and what he requires of our life, what he deserves, we begin to see that, man, really haven't done well. As a youth pastor, I, I use this analogy because it, it helped and, and it kept their interest. I would say, say one of you were to come up here and punch me in the face, and they're like, we're listening. <laughs> Not because they're mean, just because they're middle schoolers. And middle schooler just doesn't need really a reason to start a fight. They're like, okay, we can do that. It'll be fun. So say you were to come up and, and you were to punch me. What would happen? Well, first of all, You'd get restrained and you'd go and I'd talk to your parents and, hey, you know, I love that Billy comes to service, but he really can't be punching me in the face. That's, uh, that's against the rules. I know, you know, he's a free spirit, but no. And that'd be about what happens, right? That'd be the consequence. Maybe, you know, Billy would have to sit out or we'd, we'd have conversations about his behavior, whatever. The, the response would be, would be, in proportion to the honor that I am held in. And I was a youth pastor, just a young 20-something youth pastor and not held in a great deal of honor. Now, if you were to go to uh, the governor and say the governor is, is, is shaking hands and, and he's, he's just finished a speech and Billy goes up to him and just in the face, he, he might get in some trouble. He might find out what it means to be cuffed. He might go to juvenile detention. There might be some greater consequences and if he were to go to a foreign nation where there's an emperor and an all-powerful ruler and, and try to do something like that, he might lose his life. Now, 
the, the action is the same. Middle schooler just doing a stupid thing. Welcome to middle school. But the response is different. Why is the response different? Because the person against whom the offense is done is held in a greater degree of honor. And see, the problem that you and I have with our sin is that each and every time that we sin, we offend an infinitely honorable God. You see, Israel had continuously offended an infinitely honorable God. And you begin to look at this list of kings and not say, man, why is God so angry in judging these guys? But man, how is it that God held out so long? How is it that he was so patient? God tells uh, his name to, to Moses and he says, I am the Lord, the Lord. And he says, I'm, I'm gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. And sometimes we think, oh God, you know, I, I'm reading the Old Testament and, and you're smiting people and you're, you're uh, destroying nations and you're bringing judgment and, and it doesn't seem like you're being very slow to anger. But that's not because God is not slow to anger, it's because we don't have an appreciation for the depth of our own sin. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is responding to something that's been levied against him. But he says, talking about what defiles a person, uh, I'll start in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside of a person that going into him can defile him. Right? You can't eat something and then become ritually unholy. Right? You might eat something and not feel well. You might eat something and other people think that was unholy. I don't know how you put that in your mouth. But as it relates to God, there's nothing that we put in our mouth that makes us unholy. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. The things that come out of a person are what defile him. Because the things that come out of us are a reflection of the sinfulness in our heart. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. Yes, you did. To put it another way, if I were to, to jostle this, right? This, welcome, welcome to stress. Welcome, welcome to life. Maybe this was you on the way to church. What comes out of the bottle is what's in the bottle. There's water in the bottle. By the grace of God, there's not hydrochloric acid in the bottle. The problem is, for many of us, for all of us apart from Christ, there's hydrochloric acid in the bottle. It's what's in our, in our hearts that defiles us. And then finally, in, in 2 Corinthians, just in case you, you, know, you needed some convincing that your neighbor was a sinner. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is reflecting on his ministry and he's thinking about you know, what this looks like. And he says in verse 4, in, in their case, talking about those who have not received and, and responded to the good news of Jesus Christ, he says this, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So in other words, part of, part of our situation is not just that, man, um, we, we, don't, we don't do the right things. 
you know, we, we don't obey the Ten Commandments, as important those, those, those things are. No, part of the issue is that we don't appreciate and see Jesus for who he is. And we see that when we think about judgment, right? God, it's not that big of a deal because we don't see Jesus for who he is. If we saw Jesus for who he was, we would be trembling in fear. And again, I could go there. I don't think I did last time, but I'm going to go eventually. Revelation talks about Jesus coming back on a white horse with a, uh, with a robe dipped in blood. And it's dipped in blood because the wrath of God has been, he's stomped out the wrath of God. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. There's eyes of fire. He's scary. It's, we think of Jesus sometimes and we think of, you know, he's a nice guy with a beard and he's, you know, kind of feminine and, and delicate and in his face and he's carrying a, a sheep and just being so sweet, so kind. And God is sweet. He is kind. Jesus is sweet. He is patient. Children would come to him and not feel uh, scared or intimidated at all, but God is powerful and Jesus was powerful. And we don't see his glory. We are blind and we are in the dark. And, and then finally in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Apart from God, we are dead. So Isaiah is looking out at this people and, and God is speaking and he's saying, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. For those people who, because of their deadness, because of their blindness, because of their rebellion, because of their deeply, radically uh, committed sinfulness, have been taken into captivity, some have died, they're in anguish, he says, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The people who are in a state of anguish have received a promise. So the former state was one of gloom and anguish, and the latter state is of glory. God had sent the Assyrians to judge the people of, of God. And this is what it's referring to when in, in the second part of verse 1. In the former times, he brought contempt, brought into a contempt the land of, of Zebulun and, and the land of Naphtali. You see, at, when the Assyrians tank came, they came from the north. And, and who were the first groups to be attacked but Zebulun and Naphtali because they were in the north. They were to the to the west of, of the Sea of Galilee, this was called the, kind of the circuit or the corridor of, of the nations because it was, it was most closely connected with the foreign nations. So the first group to, to uh, experience the power and the judgment of the Assyrians were the nations of, or the, the, the places of Zebulun and Naphtali and the people there. And he goes on though and he says, but in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea. So he's not talking about two separate places. He's saying this, this section right here Naphtali and, 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 and Zebulun, God has made glorious the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And he goes on, and we're going to talk next week about the rest of that prophecy, but he goes on and explains that, that God has, has done something there. And what's interesting is that God had not done something there. See, Isaiah is speaking prophetically and he's, he's got a unique perspective where he's able by the power and presence of God to see into the future, to see what God will do and then refer to it in past tense. He's so confident and he's so certain in what God will do that he's able to say that God's already done it. And he says that these places will be made glorious. Now if, if I was writing the story, I, I would say that 
you know, God made them glorious by bringing in tanks, bringing in jets. I mean, how, how, how cool would it be to be like an Israelite where God's like, okay, you know, they're bringing chariots and horses. Here's, a, here's an M4. Here's a machine gun. We're going to mess them up. They are going to be blown away. You know, when we think of glory, we think of, of present-day might and power. If I were writing the story, God would have destroyed the people and the enemies of God there, and, and he would have reunited the people of God, and, and they would have been faithful, and, and the people would have been better, and they would have, they would have apologized to God and said, oh, we're so sorry, thank you for sending the tanks, it's going to be great. Because when I think of glory, when we, in our human perspective, think of glory, that glory always reflects on ourselves, and it always has a human dynamic, a human characteristic characteristic, but God's ways are different from ours. So he says, in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. How does God intend to do that? First of all, he doesn't do it immediately. I mean, Israel goes into captivity. Eventually, Judah does as well. There is a remnant. 700 years pass from, from Isaiah, over 700 years pass from Isaiah's prophecy to the advent of Jesus Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't send a huge army. This is, this is why when Jesus comes on the scene and, and he begins to establish his nation, uh, the disciples are like, okay, I want to be in your cabinet. Can I be the secretary of state? Can I be the secretary of defense? They begin jockeying for political power because they think that, that God's going to bring in an army, maybe an army of angels. Maybe they're like, maybe they'll have these tank type things. I don't know. And, and they'll think about it. But he doesn't do that. He, he doesn't come in with a huge army. He sends a child. I mean, how shocking would that be? Right, you're praying, you're asking God. Imagine being, uh, there's a guy in the New Testament who's waiting for the, the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the promise of God and he holds up this baby. Have you ever held, held a newborn baby? It's awesome. It's really fun. But they're very wiggly and they can't hold their heads up and they're just a mess. Now, they're your mess, but they're a mess. You know, they can't do things. They, they struggle to even like control their limbs and things are happening. And Babies are humble. They're, they're, they're needy. They're, they're dependent. And Jesus comes, the salvation of this nation, the salvation of nations, he doesn't come as an army. And finally, he doesn't gain glory with military might or grand strategic plans. He does so by preaching, by living, by dying, and by being resurrected. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that the writer Matthew, the, the apostle, the, the, the disciple, is actually reflecting on this section. So if you're ever wondering how the gospels differ, Matthew tends to be written towards Jewish people, the Jews of the time. And so you'll see him quoting a lot of Old Testament scripture because he's trying to say, see this thing in the Old Testament? That refers to Jesus. See this other Old Testament thing? That refers to Jesus. Mark is writing to the Romans, I believe it is. Um, Luke is writing to a guy named Theophilus. John comes in at the end and he's saying, hey guys, there are some things that we need to remember. The, the other three gospels had been written and he's saying, you know what? Here's some additional things that I want you to hear. So Matthew, who's writing to a, a, a Jewish audience, he says this in, in verse 4. 
verse 12 and following uh, of chapter 4. Now when he had heard, talking about Jesus, when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew from what? Galilee. Where does Jesus minister? Where does he do a lot of his work? But in Galilee. And he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of what? Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what might be spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And and then he quotes verse 2 of Isaiah 9. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And as, as I said, Isaiah's prophecy, though 700 years before, was so certain that he says it in the past tense. What's amazing about this is that God's promises are sure. When God makes a promise, it's fixed as though it has happened. Because for God, who is past, present, and future, it has happened. You may not be able to see things the way that God has promised, but you can trust him. This is why in Proverbs it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Right? I, I, I can see the writer of, of Proverbs saying, trust God. Just, just entreating the people who are reading it. Trust him with all your heart. Right? Don't just hold and, and trust him mostly, but hold back and trust this other thing, but trust him with everything. And what does he say after? He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean, what, on your own understanding. Because you're going to look at your life, you're going to look at your circumstances, you're going to assess them, and according to your own triage of your life, you're going to say, it's a huge mess. I don't see God. I don't see the promises of God at work. Jesus, where are you? And the danger in that is that your assessment may be factually accurate. Many of you, you're like, my life is a mess. And the reality is, your life is a mess. It's not, oh, well, actually it's not that bad. And let me me show you a different perspective of how your life is better. No, some of your lives, it's a mess. Some of you are in pain for very legitimate reasons. Some of you are very hurt for legitimate reasons. Some of you are grieving for very legitimate reasons. And the danger of trusting in your own understanding is is that you begin to do this with your understanding and say, everything that I know to be true is the only thing that's true. But he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Isaiah can look to the future and say it has happened because he's trusting this promise of God. He's seen it with his eyes. And perhaps maybe you're, you know, everyone in this room isn't a prophet, but we have God's promises which are sure. We have God's promises which can tell us how we move forward. We have God's promises which can give us perspective. Philippians 1.6, I am I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Parents, are you looking out at a prodigal? And saying, what's going to happen, God? You may be looking at their life and saying, God, their life is a mess. But you can look back and say, but God, I saw. I saw that you started something. And you're going to bring to completion what you started. God, I'm not trusting in what that kid is doing. I'm trusting in what you're doing. Isaiah 41.10, God is with you and he will strengthen you. This is a great one just to memorize. They're all great ones to memorize, but... 41.10, 41.10, Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will hold you with my right hand. Who does this apply to? 
It applies to anyone who is God's. Who do we need to fear? No one, because God is with you. And then Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, sorry, 12 and 13, so now only, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work at your salvation, work at your holiness, work at your godliness. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Some days you wake up and you're like, I don't want to do this Christian thing. I don't, I'm done. And what does what Paul say? God is at work. You don't have to get this car started. It's starting. He's on the, at the driver's seat. He's saying, come on in. It's warmed up. The engine's ready. Just jump in. You know, this is not a pond where there are, are, are mosquitoes and there's weird gross stuff. And you, you, you got to figure out, how do I make this thing clean? No, it's a river. It's a river of grace. It's moving. You're moving with it. Just jump in. God's promises are sure. And God promises that those who were in anguish would not be there forever. So we go from gloom to glory through God's Son. We are far removed from the nation of Israel and her wicked kings. And you might be tempted in this moment to think that those people and those issues were primitive and distant. But we are made of the same stuff. I'll say it again. We are made of the same stuff. The same Genesis 6-5 stuff. The same, the same Jeremiah, was it 17? I want to say 17. I should know this. 17-9. <laughs> stuff. And apart from the decisive work of God in our lives, you and I sit in gloom, anguish, and darkness. But Jesus stands as the glory of God. Jesus, the one who was promised to bring glory to the Galilee of the Gentiles, offers to bring glory to your life. He offers to bring life and light and joy to anyone who would confess that he's a sinner or she's a sinner, one who has disobeyed God and worshipped other things which are unworthy of our worship. Jesus offers eternal light, life, and joy. To those who are blind, he gives sight. To those who are dead, he gives light, life. This, this Christmas season, I don't want for you just to, to celebrate a truncated celebration of, of God who, who, who came to earth and became you know, a baby and, and it's fun and there's a donkey and we're going to do great things on Christmas Eve and you'll be able to you know, pat the bunny and, and uh, ride a, a wagon. We bring a, we bring a petting zoo. Some of you are like, pat the bunny. Anyways, Christmas, there's a lot of fun things that you can do. But... Jesus Christ came not just to do fun things, but to take us from gloom and anguish and darkness into light and life and joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are long-suffering, that you are slow to anger. Your word says that it is the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. It's your forbearance that you don't desire that anyone should perish. God, you offer opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And I pray that we would receive and respond to those opportunities. If you're in this room and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today is the day. 
to look at your life and recognize with the fact that you are a sinner, a Genesis 6-5 sinner, a Jeremiah 17-9 sinner. Not so that you can just feel grumpy or sad or, 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 or self-pitying, but that you can say, God, I have a great spiritual need. I need to be forgiven. I need to be healed. I need to be cleansed. And then to receive that from Jesus Christ and say, I, I submit my life to you. I trust you and I will follow you. If that's you, if you want to follow Jesus Christ, I'd love for you to raise your hand and pray with me. Great. Once that hand's up, you can put it back down. Great. Just pray this prayer with me. God, I, I, I see that I'm a sinner, that I have rebelled against you. And I thank you that you have made provision for my sin. I confess what I have done and, and what I have not done, a sin, and I turn away from it and I trust in Jesus. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate that the light of the glory of Jesus Christ has shown. And I pray that as this Advent season progresses, that the light of the gospel would, would shine greatly in our hearts, would encourage us, would quicken us, would cause us to pursue greater degrees of holiness and gratitude. Lord, I pray that for my life and I pray that for the people here in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, family.